listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to the ABA section of Antitrust Law. This is Ken O'Rourke, and I'm the host for today's podcast. Today, our topic is Cartel Enforcement 2018, Criminal Investigations and Private Actions. We've got a great group assembled, and we're going to walk through a number of topics. But let me start by setting the stage. Without prior notice, the FBI has questioned your client's senior sales executive at home. In addition, your client's sales offices were raided by federal agents in the U.S., and by other enforcers in Brazil and elsewhere overseas. The information coming into you is fractured. The gist is a focus on price fixing. So your questions, of course, what is going on? What do you do? What will happen next? To be sure, today is not a good day for the company or its executives, yet the situation can be improved or made worse depending on what the company does next and how quickly. We will discuss this unfolding, very real-world scenario We'll talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how to help your clients minimize, if not avoid, this experience. We will touch on criminal antitrust investigations and prosecutions in the U.S., criminal antitrust investigations in Brazil, antitrust class actions and other civil lawsuits in the U.S., private actions and other follow-on litigation in Brazil and Europe, the importance of compliance training and other steps your clients can take to keep prosecutors and antitrust lawyers like us from getting more work. Also, we would like to share with you our views on why antitrust is a terrific area of practice, both for newer lawyers and those more experienced. So who are we? Who do we have assembled today? My name again is Ken O'Rourke. I'm an antitrust litigator with O'Melveny Myers been practicing for over 30 years now based in our Washington DC office and I handle antitrust disputes of virtually any kind in any industry uh, in most any court at any time. I'm also a solicitor in England and Wales and practice in international antitrust as well. Hi, my name is uh, Richard Powers and I'm the acting deputy assistant attorney general for criminal enforcement at the United States Department of Justice Antitrust Division and my role I oversee uh, all criminal enforcement of uh, U.S. antitrust laws. My name is Alexandre Cordeiro. I am the general superintendent of CAGE, the Brazilian Antitrust Agents. So I have been, I used to be a commissioner and I have been in CAGE for the past three years and a half. And I'm Lindsay Valla. I'm an antitrust litigator in the D.C. office of Vincent and Elkins. I regularly defend corporate and individual clients through DOJ investigations and also related civil class actions. And I am the new co-chair for the ABA Cartel and Criminal Practice Committee. So I'm going to start us off today. I'm going to lob up the first question. And Alex, I'd like to start with you. Just generally, can you explain to us what is price fixing? Price fixing is one of the most uh, harmful conduct that we have in the market. And it's when the companies, they get together and they fix price of goods or they also try to split the market or they do a combination in public procurement. So in Brazil, this is very clear in the law. So we do have in our law exactly these terms of explaining what is price fixing. So we have a bunch of cases and a lot of examples and big cases of cartel, especially for the past three years. When the car washing case or the Petrobras case came up and show that in for big construction companies, 
they were like doing a lot of bid riggings and they were splitting the market in order to put the price up and so causing harm for the government and also for the whole society. And Richard, I know the DOJ has a probably a similar perspective, but is there other type of conduct in addition to price fixing that you would kind of put in a similar category? Sure. The DOJ prosecutes uh, criminally uh, anti-competitive agreements between competitors to fix prices, rig bids, and allocate markets. And to focus on price fixing, uh, these agreements, as Alex sort of alluded to, can take the form of agreements to charge the same price, uh, raise prices, eliminate discounts, establish a floor price, establish standard pricing formulas, or decrease prices paid to suppliers. And price fixing and other collusive agreements unambiguously harm competition. Uh, These crimes raise prices, restrict output, and fundamentally undermine consumers' confidence in our free market economy. Due to the harm that these crimes inflict and their classification as per se illegal, there is no defense uh, that can justify a cartel agreement. And in the United States, no proof of harm or market power is needed. So I want to talk a little bit about how common price fixing really is. When I'm working with a corporate client, the first thing a general counsel might say is that she can't imagine the company's chief sales officer in a smoke-filled room with competitors divvying up territories or agreeing on prices to charge customers. So is this something that actually happens in the real world? Rare is an outright formal agreement, written or oral, to do those things. It does happen. Those cases do come along. But more common, it's circumstantial evidence revealing an understanding that is pieced together from emails, from meetings, perhaps at industry trade shows or or even on the golf course, uh, telephone records, call uh, logs showing when calls took place, to whom and how long they lasted, the timing of those calls, various other conduct, uh, when it occurred, and when price changes occurred. All of that circumstantial evidence is pieced together oftentimes to try to show that there is a price-fixing agreement in place. Now, there's also going to be an important focus to keep in mind, and that is on evidence of deception or dishonesty, whether this deception or dishonesty is conduct that occurred before the collusion is uncovered or afterwards. It's often powerful evidence in criminal and civil cases and can turn otherwise ambiguous pricing evidence or pricing communications into a finding of guilt or innocence. And Alex, from your perspective in Brazil, is this something you see often? You mentioned a couple of examples of recent cases. Could you elaborate on those a little bit? Sure. Price fixing is much more common than one may think. No industry is immune from alleged price fixing. A remarkable example is the, in Brazil is the investigation of an alleged cartel in the fuel resale market in the federal district, which culminated on November of 2015 with outbreak of Dubai operation carried out by the federal police, the local prosecution service, and CAGI. These authorities performed a joint downraid for a full film of 42 search and seize warrant at homes and offices of individuals and companies of the sector. This was one, one of the biggest operations that we had in the fuel and gas market. And also the general superintendents 
adopt a preventive measure point, an interim administration for the company leader of the cartel. Couple months later, the general superintendent signed a cease and desist agreement to propose by the party, according to the company and its shareholders, will have to collect approximately 30 million of US dollars of a pecuniary contribution. So, and also provide the documents and full cooperate with the authority until the end of the investigations. In this case, also additionally, the agreement forces the divestment of several gas stations currently under parties management in key points of the federal district. So we have also the construction and civil engineer market is, as I told you before, a big case in Brazil that involve also the corruption, the corruption scandal. And this, the biggest construction companies are involved and we did many leniences and also uh, we're doing a lot of season disease settlement as well. Sounds like you've been very busy. Richard, I know the Department of Justice has been similarly busy. Do you want to walk us through some of the more noteworthy recent investigations? Sure, I can uh, provide a few examples of the recent investigations and to echo the point that Alex made. I, I do think this is more common than one might think. So I'll start in the electronic components industry. Uh, the division has recently investigated and prosecuted uh, cases for price fixing of electrolytic capacitors, which are a key component of numerous consumer products such as phones and computers. And uh, there the division brought criminal cases against 10 executives and eight corporations, resulting in over $92 million in criminal fines for the company's total to date. Now, the next example would be in the packaged uh, seafood uh, industry. Uh, we recently brought uh, criminal prosecutions for price fixing in this industry for things such as canned tuna. And as a result of this investigation, we brought charges against Bumblebee, uh, which pleaded guilty, and charges against executives in the industry, including Bumblebee's now former CEO. Several other executives have also pleaded guilty for their roles in the conspiracy. And then the last example I'll touch on uh, involves the financial service sector. The division has a long track record of prosecuting antitrust crimes arising in the financial service industry. Uh, the division's investigation into collusion in the foreign exchange market uh, led to billions of dollars in criminal fines and parent-level corporate pleas from banks. And our focus on this industry continues. And this fall, the division has upcoming trials against former uh, foreign exchange traders who worked at these banks. And one area that I've been watching is in the area of employment and hiring, wage fixing or agreements not to recruit employees from a competitor or employer. The DOJ and the FTC issued joint guidance in this area in, in late 2016 and have made several statements since that time. I think we're all kind of waiting with somewhat bated breath to see what's coming down the pike. And I know there have been some notable civil enforcement actions. So I think this is an area to watch as well. Yeah, just as one example in the civil enforcement area, and we'll talk more about this a little later in our program, but think back just a few years ago when there was a civil jury verdict, when it was troubled, it was $1.2 billion for price fixing of plastics, urethanes. That was against Dow Chemical. It later settled for under a billion dollars, but nevertheless, it gives a sense of the order of magnitude of these kinds of cases at times. 
So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how this activity comes to light. And Alex, I'd like to start with you. What are some of the techniques that you're using in Brazil to uncover price fixing and, and similar conduct? So the primary and wide objectives pursued in the enforcement of competition law are the prevention and repression of violation of economic order. So, and we have this in our constitution and also in our law, our competition law. When we talk about cartels, sometimes we think we're very dependent of lenience settlement. So, but in Brazil, we were trying to do also another kind of investigation that involves a project that's called Brain Project. We have an algorithm and a lot of data with a big data that we can try to figure out if they're colluding online and uh, public bid. So it means that we have the name of the partners of the company. We have a history of the past 10 years, uh, the all bid, the value of the bid. We have the relation between companies. We have the information about if the bid is coming from the same building or the same room, the same computer. We have all these things and we get together and we're now we're training our people from the public service and the ministries and the other institutions in order to try to identify if there is a, a probability of collusion in that bid. So besides that, for sure, we do also have our lenience program that is growing a lot. It's a little bit different from the rest of the world. One is because the car washing case, the Petrobras case, just for an idea, last year we did 31 lenience so we had a lot of markets and this year we did some already and we are negotiating kind of 35 season desist agreement at the same time, just in one big case. So this is what is uh, happening in Brazil uh, about tools and skills that we have to do the cartel enforcement. And Richard, I know the DOJ's leniency program is about to have a birthday. Do you want to talk to us about that? Sure. So, um, before I get to that, I'll just say that, uh, you know, like Alex, we uncover collusion in a variety of ways through self-reporting. So the leniency program you mentioned through an, uh, investigative efforts of our law enforcement partners, as well as our trial attorneys and through our outreach efforts and through uh, actually through citizen complaints. But uh, to focus on the self-reporting uh, through our leniency program for a minute, as you mentioned, uh, our leniency policy is approaching its 25th birthday in its current form. And, uh, you know, we think that its longevity speaks to its success. This policy is a highly effective tool for the detection of cartel offenses. It offers companies and individuals that are the first to self-report participation in a criminal antitrust uh, conspiracy, the opportunity to avoid criminal prosecution, criminal fines, and prison terms if they satisfy a defined uh, set of criteria, which will include cooperation in the division's investigation against other uh, co-conspirators. And our leniency program is a key part of the division's criminal enforcement program and plays a crucial role in our efforts to destabilize cartels, investigate difficult to detect conduct. And I'll say from the defense side, in my experience, the leniency program leads to a race by competitors or by companies who are competitors to quickly yet thoroughly investigate conduct. Did we violate the law and how do we figure that out quickly? And then, you know, if we did, how do we get quickly to in front of DOJ um, and be the first one in? So 
even an hour or two, not to be dramatic about it, can make a difference because being the first has many more benefits than being second or third. Yeah, and, you know, it is true. As you said, that sometimes it can be a matter of hours that makes a difference. So, you know, we encourage companies to, to come in as quickly as possible. But if a company is not eligible for leniency, it should still consider the enormous benefits of early cooperation in the DOJ's investigation. The sentencing guidelines contemplate credit for substantially assisting the investigation and our prosecution teams take timing, among other factors, into account when assessing the credit a company or an individual receive uh, for their cooperation. So, you know, maybe framing it a little differently, you know, if you have a conspiracy with a number of firms, there's the, you know, let's say you have a leniency applicant and you're going to have potentially some other firms that will come in for early cooperation. By the time you get to the end of the conspiracy, the end of the firms, we may not need the, that company's cooperation. And so there may actually not be the opportunity to get that credit. And a burning question everybody always has is trends. So are, uh, what's the trend in leniency applications in the U.S.? Are they going up? Are they going down? Are they flat? Do you have a, a view on that? You know, I think the number of applications we receive in any particular year goes up and down over time as any sort of other uh, metric you could look at for our program would, such as uh, fines or sentences or convictions. I don't think anyone should, can or should read too much into the fluctuation of where the stats fall at any uh, particular moment in time. But uh, just kind of going back to the broader question, um, you know, in terms of the Department of Justice, you know, we use a variety of investigative techniques, including the use of uh, grand jury proceedings. We frequently work with law enforcement partners, such as the FBI. We or agent partners will conduct knock-and-talk interviews, like the one Ken sort of mentioned at the uh, at the beginning. And uh, we also conduct more formal interviews, including uh, putting witnesses before the grand jury for more formal testimony, as well as uh, uh, proffer sessions. Uh, we will obtain and execute uh, search warrants, and issue uh, subpoenas, usually grand jury subpoenas for documents and other material. And with respect to emerging technologies, you know, increasingly uh, we're confronting more sophisticated means of communications like encrypted apps that demand uh, new investigative tools. And we're staying ahead of those technologies in our partnership with FBI and other law enforcement uh, colleagues and are constantly developing new tools to target conspirators' attempts to evade detection. And I think another interesting angle is that sometimes problematic documents suggesting collusive behavior sometimes turn up in otherwise innocuous investigations like a merger investigation or during transaction due diligence. Um, I think there is maybe a recent civil enforcement action in the hiring and employment space where the problematic documents sort of unexpectedly came up during a, a merger review. I think there's another area where problematic documents can come up and can lead to a DOJ investigation, and that's private lawsuits. Now, the ordinary uh, course of events is there will be a DOJ criminal investigation. It becomes public, and then it spawns civil litigation. But at times, there is civil litigation between companies over something, maybe an antitrust uh, allegation, and documents are turned up during discovery that later lead to a DOJ investigation into that same conduct. So we've talked about what price fixing is. We've talked about how both Brazil enforcers and the Department of Justice are using different techniques to detect it. Let's move to talking about the consequences. And Alex, how serious is price fixing and, and what are some of the possible repercussions? In Brazil, the potential punishment and repercussion 
are submission to fines that range from 0.1% to 20% of the gross income of the company. So at the same article in our law, also establish fines for persons, uh, whether it's a shareholder or not, a natural or legal person, and also they they have uh, consequences in criminal sphere because it's also economic crime in Brazil. And the penalty establishes imprisonment from two to five years. And we have also fine to those who commit crime against the economic order. So, and there is sometimes a sanction for divestiture. We can also uh, prohibit the companies to uh, contract with uh, administration, not receive any benefits financially from the government. Another sanctions that is very important in Brazil, we can also raise our enforcement. And Richard, from the U.S. perspective, what can a company that finds itself in the DOJ crosshairs for this type of conduct expect in terms of repercussions? Sure. DOJ criminal investigations can result in substantial uh, criminal fines and uh, prison time for the culpable executives. For individuals convicted of an antitrust crime, the statutory maximum, they could face up to 10 years in prison if convicted. For the company's sentence, the fines uh, that they face will be substantial the statutory maximum for a for an antitrust violation is $100 million, but we do have the ability under another provision to go above the statutory maximum, and we can and will seek to do that in the appropriate circumstances. And in fact, our, our largest criminal fine to date is about $925 million for our company. And then just the last point I would make in terms of what the potential penalties and repercussions could be uh, with respect to... Uh, foreign executives who are charged, uh, you know, we we can and we will uh, seek to extradite those individuals to the United States and we'll avail ourselves of tools available to us to try to get them here through the formal extradition process, red notice and the like. Lindsay, there's another important consequence from price fixing in addition to the government enforcement that we just heard about from Alexander and Richard, and that's the private litigation. I keep coming back to that because when word of these kinds of investigations and guilty pleas and so forth becomes public, there is an avalanche of civil litigation that follows. There are class actions. They come fast and furious. They result usually in what we call an MDL proceeding where the class actions from around the country are then coordinated in front of a single judge. And there's various types of class actions as well as other civil litigation that we see virtually every time there's one of these major investigations. Yeah, Ken, you're exactly right. We have indirect and direct purchasers that will usually file suit, oftentimes multiple, and then they'll be consolidated into an MDL, as you alluded to. You have federal causes of action filed by direct purchasers, indirect purchasers filing suit under state antitrust and unfair competition laws. And this litigation is hard fought against experienced plaintiff's counsel. Um, And plaintiffs who prevail are entitled to trouble damages, attorneys, fees, and costs which is another way that these cases get really scary for companies very quickly. They may have already paid a large criminal fine and now they're looking at possible trouble damages in the civil space. And then of course, you've got joint and several liability without contribution, which makes it even more scary. And in addition to those class actions, we get what we call opt-out cases where very large purchasers of the product that is allegedly price fixed will decide rather than being in the class and having the class action proceed ultimately to some resolution that might benefit financially the, the company that that uh, overpaid for its products, 
these companies, large household name companies, will decide to file their own lawsuit against the alleged colluders and recover their own damages of what they contend they overpaid. These individual lawsuits, we call them opt-out lawsuits because the companies have opted out of the class, are in and of themselves very substantial antitrust litigation. When you have a company that's a Fortune 100 company bringing an antitrust lawsuit against others, you can imagine, going back to your point about hard-fought litigation, that is hard-fought litigation and a big part of what happens in these price-fixing situations. Richard, one question I often get from clients as they're considering whether or not to race in for leniency is, I go in and I say I did it, then I can, you know, I have all this avalanche of civil litigation and that might be coming my way. What's the DOJ perspective on that? Sure. The the benefits of leniency flow all the way through to the civil litigation. And, and because uh, and part of that comes from the fact that, you know, when you uh, receive conditional leniency, you have to admit to the uh, antitrust violation. And under uh, what's referred to as ACPERA, successful leniency applicant may avoid uh, treble damages and joint and several liability if it provides satisfactory uh, cooperation to the plaintiffs in the civil litigation. And ACPAR has played an important role in the division's criminal enforcement program since its enactment 15 years ago. ACPAR's detrebling and joint and several liability provisions removed what the defense bar has described as a significant uh, disincentive to seeking leniency. And Alex, how about Brazil? What's the civil landscape look like in Brazil? The current legislation in Brazil on private damage is just for single damage. Now, the Brazilian competition law in Article 47 established that the party has to pay the fine, to contribute with the fine, and also pay the damage. So, but we don't have in Brazil very much historic and big historic of private litigations. It's start to grow in, right now. And one of our concerns is to preserve the golden rule about the lenience program. So it's a big discussion in Brazil with kind of documents can you show when we're talking about the lenience program. So there is a bill in Congress that besides preserving the documents and the confidentiality of the lenience, it's also raising and increasing the private enforcement. So what the bill is doing is, if you're a beneficiary of the, the lenience, you have to pay the private damage, but you don't have to pay a double or triple damage. You just pay single damage. But if you are not cooperating, you have to pay a double damage. So we do two things in this bill. So we preserve the golden rule and also we increase the enforcement of the private sector and the private uh, litigation. So one thing that is very important in the private litigation in Brazil is that CAD doesn't play this role. So CAD doesn't do any private litigation. We don't give the documents. What we do is we do our judgment. And if the party seems that he's like had some harm or the third party, he can go in CAD, get our decision and go to the court. So let me just add, if I may, Lindsay, a little bit about Europe. Just as Alexander mentioned that this is a uh, private damages is relatively new in Brazil, it's relatively new in Europe in the sense that it has recently attracted a lot of attention, new legislation across Europe, and private actions being much more serious than in years past. So today we see actions in virtually all the major countries, and I won't go into all of them, but let me just pause on England for a minute. 
when there is a large international price-fixing cartel and the DOJ's investigated, the European Commission's investigated, and so forth, it is likely that in addition to the lawsuits in the U.S., we will see lawsuits in London. And the English have a new system that is essentially a class action system. They call it a collective proceeding. It's a bit of a hybrid between the U.S. class action approach and the Canadian class action approach. It's, uh, it's new. They're finding their way through it, exactly what is a requirement for certifying a collective proceeding and so forth. But that is a big development and something that we have to pay very big attention to going forward. All right. So we've heard the parade of horribles. To oversimplify it, a lot of very bad things can happen to a company that finds itself in the middle of a price-fixing investigation. Ken, you regularly counsel clients in this area. What are your thoughts on how a client can avoid this mess? Sure. Well, as we started the, today's program with a comment that it's a very bad day when your clients find out about alleged price fixing because of an FBI interview or a raid on the company's facilities, it is much better to learn about this alleged wrongdoing on your own, from your own internal sources, and then deal with it. I mean, you're going to have a problem either way, but it's a lot better if you can find it yourself and be proactive in how it's then managed as opposed to reactive. So how does how do you do that? Well, companies, um, every company has a compliance policy, and most of those address antitrust issues or competition issues. But not all companies have those provisions or that part of their compliance program front and center in the employees' minds. And so we really emphasize, make sure the compliance manuals are up to date on the competition aspects and across the jurisdictions where the companies uh, have operations. Train your employees on that. Have regular training sessions. Very important, particularly with the sales team, the legal team, the executive team, and some others. Teach employees how to address certain uh, potentially hot topics in documents because the way people casually write about pricing or about competitive communications or about industry trends are often misunderstood by regulators or enforcers and certainly get misconstrued in civil litigation. So you can teach your employees how to be more accurate and precise when they write about some of these potentially hot topics that are perfectly legitimate to write about and the sources of the information may be perfectly legitimate as long as that's made clear in the document so nobody misconstrues where that information came from. I would just add to your list of employees to include HR personnel now, given the new focus on or the recent focus on the employment and hiring space. HR managers are often in a unique position to catch potential problematic conduct in that area as well. Absolutely. Very good point. And then I would just to finish off by saying, I would review the company's participation in industry standard setting organizations. Those are often alleged to be a vehicle for collusion and they're perfectly legitimate again, but make sure the conduct is not to be misconstrued. And then finally, audit. Just ensure that your company is complying. Some of the this most sensitive areas of the company are complying with the policies and have some kind of a hotline so that if anybody learns of potential wrongdoing, they can report it immediately, anonymously, and the leadership of the company can then deal with it. So Richard and Alex, what credit, if any, does DOJ and Kaje give a company for having a robust antitrust compliance program in place? These programs can be expensive to create, expensive to train on. So what are the benefits to doing this? Sure. You know, the, historically, the division has not found uh, occasion to consider crediting at the sentencing phase 
uh, an antitrust offender's pre-existing compliance program. That's really a function of the way the sentencing guidelines are drafted and work. Under the analysis, the sentencing guidelines require a company's compliance program can't be considered effective and therefore merit a reduced sentence when the conduct reached to the highest levels of the company. And that's often the case in price fixing agreements. Uh, it does go to the highest levels of the company. So uh, there won't be the credit available under the guidelines oftentimes. Uh, with that said, uh, the division uh, recently held a compliance roundtable with the defense bar and other stakeholders. And we have been thinking about the comments and discussions at the roundtable. And we are uh, carefully examining our policy on compliance, including assessing whether and in what circumstances in a pre-existing compliance program might properly merit consideration. There's also a question of credit for an extraordinary forward-looking compliance program. And in a few exceptional circumstances, the division has given credit for uh, forward-looking compliance programs as sort of remedial efforts. And then I guess the last point I would make is, you know, compliance is an important topic right now within the antitrust division. And we really want to ensure that the proper incentives exist for companies to create and maintain truly effective compliance programs, efforts that focus on corporate culture and not simply, you know, an off-the-shelf uh, paper program. And Alex, what credit, if any, does Kaje give for a robust pre-existing compliance program? Nowadays, Kaje doesn't have legal or infra-legal parameters to or guidelines to officially give any specific level of credit or discount to defendants that have compliance program in place. However, Kaji uh, recognized its importance and incentivizes it. In this sense, in 2016, Kaji published the guidelines for a competition compliance program, which provides a set of internal measures that could be adopted by economic agents to prevent or minimize risks of infringements to the economic order or to detect them uh, more quickly. Uh, the guidelines are directed at the creation of an internal program to companies that is effective in avoiding infringement to the Brazilian competition law. It preserves, without being specific, the possibility of reducing punishment from effective lenience programs as well as uh, worsening punishment in the case of adoption of fake programs. Lindsay, if I can ask you a question, actually, I'd like to also at the same time start to bring our program today to a close. And I want to change our topic a bit from the substance of the price fixing in cartel, uh, criminal and civil prosecutions to a topic of what we as lawyers who practice in this area uh, get out of it. Why do we enjoy this area? And so, Lindsay, uh, first to you and then, of course, to Richard and Alexander, is the price fixing in cartels part of antitrust a good area to practice in, particularly for junior lawyers who are looking about into what types of areas they might focus on as they develop their career? I'm so glad you asked this question, Ken. I agree with you. I think this is an area that at least all of us here today feel strongly about and, and really enjoy working in. I would say antitrust generally and not just um, cartel work is a great practice area for lawyers at all experience levels. But focusing on younger lawyers, I was a junior lawyer when I started doing cartel and related civil litigation. And I found that the diversity of experience is unparalleled. Um, you work with the Department of Justice and other enforcement agencies. You work regularly with your clients 
interviewing witnesses, preparing witnesses, preparing people to go before the grand jury. Um, on the civil side, you may be in court for the various MDL proceedings. It's just a really great way to try lots of different things in, in one particular area of law. So I would highly recommend it. Um, new lawyers in particular, I think, can learn more about an antitrust practice through active involvement in the ABA's antitrust section. There's a young lawyers group um, that works with the section. There's also our cartel and criminal practice committee. And we regularly conduct programs, seminars, and perhaps most importantly for younger lawyers, networking opportunities for both U.S. and international practitioners. So Ken, I'm going to give you a twofold answer on this one. The first one is sort of what, along the lines uh, for what Lindsay mentioned, which is, you know, when you're a young lawyer and you get into antitrust, you actually get to see a lot of different uh, parts of the practice. Certainly on the cartel side, you're going to be exposed to a white collar criminal practice, which is more oftentimes more than just the antitrust. It can be fraud and other violations. And also you get to investigate and look at a number of industries. So you really get to see sort of a diverse fact pattern. And then the other, the other part for why I would encourage anyone to sort of go down this path, especially the DOJ path, is that you know, I think one of the great honors certainly I've had in my career is the ability to stand up in court and to say my name and then say on behalf of the United States. And, you know, there is something incredibly special about that. And it is an honor. And I encourage anyone who's thinking of getting into this area to, you know, consider trying their hand in the government at some point and uh, seeing it from that perspective. So in Brazil is also a very important area. And we recommend for the young lawyers, if they want to start to to advocate in this in this um, area, they ha must have a economic background. This is very important. It's a multidisciplinary area, so uh, have to have a economic background. And also, one thing that is very important is we have a very small antitrust community in Brazil, and a very strong board. And CAD as well is um, one of the important uh, antitrust agents. So you have the opportunity to work at the private sector and also in the public sector in Brazil. So uh, this kind of area is increasing a lot. The number of mergers and acquisitions in Brazil is increasing. So it's a very good opportunity to work in this, in this field. So I'd like to echo the words of Lindsay, Richard, and Alexander on this point and, and uh, share their sentiments. This is a terrific area to practice in for a number of reasons. You get to work with people in so many different areas, whether it's the white collar, civil litigation, the criminal, the merger, the antitrust and intellectual property area that overlaps and so many others. But let me touch on one other part of what makes this practice area so special in my view. I'm sure this is true in other areas of law. I have less experience there, but I can speak to this area very clearly. And that is practice and antitrust is a profession. It's not a job. You work with the same people over and over again. We have a very largely civil and a collegial bar. Yes, you fight like cats and dogs against your opponent, of course. And yes, you're uh, fighting for your client at all times. But at the end of the day, at the end of the court day, you can get together with your opponent and sit down and have a very civil and collegial and professional chat. And uh, that is a very important part of antitrust. It's a very important part of our profession. And in light of the fact that you're likely to work in this profession for decades, it makes working in it so much more enjoyable. Um, so I really thank all of us, all of you uh, this afternoon for our uh, discussion. And Lindsay, let me turn it back to you. 
I also would like to thank you, Ken, Richard, and Alex for having this terrific program today. Let's just all go around and and provide contact information or whatever you're comfortable with so that any listeners who may have follow-up questions can contact us. I'm Lindsay Valla, and you can find me on Vincent and Elkin's webpage. I'm also the co-chair for the Cartel and Criminal Practice Committee, and so I'm listed on the leadership for the ABA Antitrust Section. This is Ken O'Rourke. I'm with O'Melveny and Myers, and uh, probably most easily reachable through our law firm's website, www.omm.com. And this is uh, Richard Powers. And if you have questions about the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, you can find us on our website, which is through uh, justice.gov, I believe, backslash ATR. We have a significant amount of publicly available information on the website, and there's ways to contact us through that site. I am Alexandre Cordeiro, the General Superintendent of CAD. The easiest way to get in touch with me is through uh, the CADE's website is cade.gov.br. This concludes another podcast from the ABA section of antitrust law. Listeners, if you like what you heard, please find us and rate us an Apple podcast. I'm Lindsay Valla. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.